By the time you finish this ad, 1,157 people will have planned their travel on Skyscanner. Skyscanner is here to make travel simple while finding you the best deals. From flights and hotels to car rentals, we bring everything together in one place so you can plan the perfect trip from D.C. and beyond. Discover why over 100 million travelers trust us every month. Search Skyscanner or download the Skyscanner app today. The Film Review, movies, music, culture, politics, society podcast. Interviews, movie reviews, and more. Live Sundays at 5.30 p.m. on Facebook at Crazon Dion. Hey everybody, this is Lunell, the original bad girl of comedy. I'm here at the Link Promenade in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, and you're watching the Film Review. What's going on, people? What is going on, people? Do we have another great show for you today? Broadcasting lively over here at The Film Review. Movies, music, culture, politics, and society. We're the husband and wife team. I'm Crazy D. And we review movies, music, culture, politics, and society. And like I said, do we have a great show for you today? Great First of all, let me uh, go here and bring this up real quick. This is our 83rd episode. Now let's run down who we have on the show today. Let's talk about who we have on the show today. Okay. First of all, we're going to tell you that we have Wayne Powers. Wayne Powers is on the show today, right? We're going to go through how you know him like you know him from deep blue sea right you also know him from valentine out of order that's the hbo show and the italian job from uh, 2003 we're also going to be talking about the five reasons why you shouldn't see the harriet film Right. Also, we're talking about the top five action films of all time. Also, with uh, Wayne Powers, is his producer on this film that we're going to be talking about tonight and reviewing, which is Loves Me, Loves Me Not. Right. His producer, Rashid Stevens, he's also on the line. We're going to be bringing him up shortly. But let me do some uh, populating here on the Facebook. You can see us on Crazon Dion on Facebook. And you can listen to us right on Blog Talk Radio. All the links are right there at uh, Crazon Dion on Facebook. Where you can go right there and see us, you know, live. Right there on uh, the page. And while I'm populating here population. Let's see. Let's go back here for a second. Yep, everything is streaming. So, alright people. So let's get started. I'll let that populate a little bit and we'll get started. Okay. It's been an interesting week. Yes. It has been a very interesting week. First of all, we want to give our condolences to the family of John Witherspoon. Yeah. And we came across this uh, this meme, which is very that's right, very heartfelt yeah. of the characters from 
boondocks, right? And I mean, it just says it all. They lost not only their grandfather as a character, but they lost John Witherspoon as the voice, the legend. Like Ice Cube said, he said that the world has become a little less funny. He's devastated. And we're devastated too, because we were looking forward to seeing what they were going to do with the boondocks. Yeah, and we were looking forward to seeing finally the Friday movie to come, right? And none of that now. Right? I mean, well, it's still going to go on. But without But without him. And it just goes to show you that you cannot waste time in this life. You cannot waste time. Like all the different production behind the scenes, all the different companies behind the scenes telling them what they could and could not do, uh, waiting on, you know, the film and waiting on, you know, doing the boondocks again and then waiting on Friday. And, you know, life is not forever. Right. So you have to make sure that what you produce, that it does come out and that you don't waste the time, waste time, thus wasting the time that people have on the planet to uh, get these things produced, right? Yeah. All right. So let's get to the interview of, of the night, right? Let me bring this graphic up real quick so we can get started here. There we go. So on the screen right now, people, you have the picture of our interview for tonight, right? Is Wayne Powers and his producer for this film, Loves Me, Loves Me Not, Rashid Stevens, right? So we're gonna bring them up on the line right now and we're gonna get started with the interview. Hey guys, how you doing? Make sure that your listening devices are down and that you're listening straight through your phones. That way we have a clear signal and uh, so that the interview is uh, great for iHeartRadio, Spotify, um, and all the other platforms that we our podcast is on. Okay? First of all, how are you two doing tonight? Good day my life. And you're going to say that, Steve. I'm, uh, I'm doing terrific. I'm really glad to be on your podcast. I'm honored. Oh, thank you. We're honored to have you. Yes, we are. You know, Hollywood, Hollywood, I will call it Hollywood royalty. Because yeah. we're going to break down and, and break down your list of accomplishments real quick. You know, I did it briefly at the top, but we're going to go through it. Deep Blue Sea, 1999. $82 million budget. 164 million worldwide. One of four writers on Deep Blue Sea. Valentine. For those who remember, he had the uh, Valentine's mask on and he was killing up all the people who were. For those who haven't seen it, it still stands the test of time. You have to see it. Came out in 2001. It's a slasher film released February 2001. On uh, it during Valentine's, right? And it's uh, it earned, I mean, it, uh, yeah, it earned 36.7 million and it cost 29 million to make. Then we have Out of Order, which was the 2003 miniseries on HBO, 
and it deal and we'll go into what it deals into. And then the Italian job, 2003, right? $176 million, United States and Canada and worldwide. The budget was only $60 million. These are successes, right? And it's, the, it's directed by F. Gary Gray. You know F. Gary Gray from Friday. Said it all. The negotiator. The Italian job. A man apart. Be cool. Straight out of Compton. The fate of the furious, etc. Right? So we have some questions for you. But the first question, I, I want to go back a little bit with you, Wayne. When did you know that you wanted to be a filmmaker, a, a film, a, a script writer, filmmaker, and how did you go about learning the craft of filmmaking? Well, I was 12 years old, okay. and I was on a swing set from my grandma school, and I had this image of myself by a uh, by a cliff with a film crew and filming a car going off that cliff. And uh, you saw that, and I thought I want I want to make that a reality. And um, and I had no I didn't know anybody in the business. I had no experience at all. But I uh, got into USC film school. I got turned down three times and got taken the fourth. Okay. And uh, and then I started there. And um, I wrote a script when I was in film school. That I then continued to write about six months extra after I graduated. That script got me a um, a lawyer, then an agent, and then my first job right at TV group at HC. That script was not a commercial script. It was about black and white sharecroppers in the 1930s, but uh, it was the it had a real strong structure, dialogue, and all those things. Okay, are you are you born in Los Angeles? Were you born in Los Angeles? No, I was, bo I was born in Boston. Boston. And then I was raised in New Hampshire. Okay, Boston and then New Hampshire. And then I came out to U.S. Raised in New Hampshire, yeah. Okay. In a very tiny town of 500 people. Of 500 people. So it was a kind of a shock coming yeah. out to <laughs> L.A.? It was a huge shock, especially um, New Hampshire is the most non-diverse uh, city there is, I mean state, and uh, in, my, in my whole high school, um, well, you know, we called a uh, black person in, uh, in my high school. We called him Kevin because that's the only one that was there. And, uh, so, so it was a shock when I came out to USC because it's such a huge city. And, uh, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't very aware of, of the situation. I'd be going on walks into, uh, into areas that I probably shouldn't be walking. Okay. And so, for, for people who have never been to Los Angeles, Hollywood, when you first, did you fly or did you take a Greyhound? And what was that experience like I getting, flew. getting off, you, you, you flew, you said? Yeah. Okay. So what yeah, was that, what was that experience like getting off the plane in LAX and then, uh, going into Hollywood, where where was your first, you were going to school, what was your first destination, where did you stay, what was the dormitory like, let them know what it felt like, what it smelled like, what it looked like. I was uh, very enthusiastic to be there, 
but I also um, stood out a bit because I, like I said, I came from New Hampshire. I had a very thick New Hampshire accent, and uh, I wore clothes that weren't the same type of clothes as far as like I wore sweatpants with shorts on top of them. That was the look that we had in New Hampshire. Okay. And, um, you know, I, and I was into different music. I was into like, um, Springsteen and Tom Petty and stuff, and my roommates were into, into the Beach Boys. It, just, it was just a very kind of clash of cultures, but I knew it was really welcoming to me. I was a very welcoming place because people from all over, the, all over the country come to California, and there are many people there that are used to having people from different places. Mm, from different places. So, you, you you get there, You I, I suppose that you did a um, student film. That student film was what got you your agent, or you did multiple student films for your thesis for graduation, and then you moved on, and then you did another film to get the agent. Explain that process to the people. Yeah, when you're at the UC Film School, you make a number of short films. Mm-hmm. Um, my goal when I was there was to win a student Emmy, which I did. And that, however, the student, the short film, the feeling makes so many good, real good short films. That didn't uh, get me an agent. What got me an agent was a screenplay. And that's one thing I could stress is that if you want to get in the film industry, the best way to do it is to write a screenplay. And because uh, it doesn't cost me a lot of money to write it. And, um, and I just think that that gives you opportunities. Because if you write something that you want to direct, you can insist on directing it. If you write something that you want to star in, like Rocky or um, Spring Blade, you just uh, insist on it. And um, so that's the sort of a went, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the, screen, the screenplay that I wrote in college about my work, writing TV with Rick for um, ABC. Mm-hmm. So when you're in college and everything, they teach you how to write a treatment and then turn it into script form. Explain to young filmmakers out there what the difference between a treatment and a script is for those who are interested in getting into film. Sure, a treatment is kind of like a short version. And uh, the treatment just sort of tells you describes every scene in paragraph form. Uh, not, not much dialogue, but I think it sort of explains what happens in each scene. But the screenplay gives you a true look at the, at the film as far as dialogue and structure and uh, you know, your style of writing uh, the descriptions makes a big difference. And um, it's just, it's the whole thing. And, and so, so once you see, I think mean, uh, there weren't so many books about how to write screenplays as there are now. Uh-huh. So I just uh, read sample screenplays in the library and just learned how to do it from there. And I had a really good writing teacher that really believed in me. Mm-hmm. Now, how important is it to know uh, how to write a script, how, how to write a beginning, <laughs> middle, and end of a script? How important is it? Well, I think it's super important. Sometimes you hear about people that just sat down and just read the script, wrote the script, just poured out of them. Uh-huh. But uh, I'm not even sure I believe them. 
And uh, it's really important before you begin writing that you have a real sense of what this leading to. You know, what is the, the theme of the script? And uh, who's the antagonist? And you see how they push graphs of all those type of, uh, type of things. Mm. So, I mean, this for, for the people who are coming in, we are talking to Wayne Powers, a Hollywood director, screenwriter, producer, making it happen in Hollywood. And we are we always are about the next generation of filmmakers coming up, making sure that they know how to go about doing what's necessary to do. So I wanted to ask those questions and get background yeah. for it. How rigorous is the uh, curriculum in film school? How rigorous is it? Like, what do you have to go? You have to uh, not only do the math, but the English in the um, under undergrad. But as you get into becoming a, yeah, into, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. You got, you got my drift. I was, I, I was only a uh, undergrad. Okay. And uh, I went there, and uh, for undergrad, you spent two years learning stuff like introduction to physics and English classes and all that kind of stuff. And you, you sneak in some um, film classes, but they're more like um, film criticism and history of film and things like that. Mm-hmm. Then on your third year, your third year, you finally get to make some films. You make five, at the time there was Super 8 when I was there, mm-hmm. uh, uh, films. And then the next month you make two of them that are on uh, 16 millimeter. And then this semester after that, you uh, you, vote, you have a different people competing to direct the final project. And I, I was selected to direct it, me and one other person. And then um, you make that film. And that's, that's the important film, most important. Most so you important. have to work, you work incredibly hard. You have to learn to have a fixed skin really right in the beginning. Because they uh, can be very critical of your work, and you just have to keep on. My first films that I made were terrible, and uh, I just I just had confidence and continued to try harder and harder. Okay, and then when did you uh, come from out of uh, film school? When did you uh, finish film school? When? Yeah, when? What? What? What year? Oh, yeah. What? What year? When? Uh, trying to give away my age. Um, 1983. Okay, 1983. So then from there, you, you you basically, do you shop your film to get an agent or were you looking for an agent or were you screening your film and then all of a sudden uh, agents came up to you and said, we want to represent you. How does that work? Yeah, here's how it works for me. We had a guest speaker at USC who had written uh, some TV movies and was a, was a successful writer. And when I, as I was about to graduate, I called him up, I got his number somehow, called him up, and I asked him uh, if he would read a script that I'd written. And he said no, but he knew a entertainment lawyer uh, that was just new in the business, and he thought that person might want to read it. I think it's Fred Jalen. So I got the script to Fred Jalen, and he liked it, and uh, he sent the script out to agents because it's very difficult to get agents to read a script that's unsolicited. Mm-hmm. 
In other words, a script that has not been sort of vetted by uh, somebody that the agent knows. And uh, so it was sent to a couple of different agencies and an agency named William Morris, which was a which is a really big agency. Mm -hmm. um, except in the fact they got two agents from that because they both like the material so much. Mm -hmm. And so from from well, I was saying that if you if you're looking for an agent, you need to you need to really think about any type of connection at all. It can be a friend of a friend. It can be um, somebody that knows somebody that wants to be a lawyer, wants to be an agent, or any other type of thing. That's because the first getting an agent to read is is the most difficult, not the most difficult, but it's a difficult part of the equation. The most difficult part of the equation. So it just so happened that that person was at your film school, and that's how you were able to uh, ask him, and then he said no, but then he gave you over to someone that was young and hungry and wanting to break in the business and say, I have this young man that I brought through and then it builds your name, builds his name and builds, uh, I guess, William Morris's, uh, William Morris, the uh, talent agency's name for breaking a, or bringing in a new talent that's very successful. Is that how that works? Yes, exactly. Exactly. That works for me. Okay, so 83. So what happens? You, you start to go behind the scenes and work on different movie sets before we get to 1999 and you writing uh, Deep Blue Sea. How does, how does that process from 83 to 99, what, is, what are the steps that you did? What was the grind that you did to get to that point where you were assigned to write along with three other writers Deep Blue Sea? Uh, you know, three other writers, that's a different story. Um, the, uh, so, okay, so what were you just talking about? Oh, I, I it began in, um, my first job at 22 was writing, age 22 was writing a TV series episode, an old TV series called Tagging and Lacey. Another, and I also wrote for another TV series called The Equalizer. And this was before, this was before The Equalizer movie, obviously. But it was a TV series. Right. And um, so basically, yeah, the way I got the Cadme and Lazy writing job is I wrote a spec script. That means a script that you're not being paid for, but you're hoping something will come out of it. Okay. I wrote a spec script for Cadme and Lazy, and, and then my agent got my script, my spec script, to the people who run Cadme and Lazy, and they really liked it, and they hired, they hired me. I think when they hired me, they didn't realize that I was 22 years old. I looked even younger. I looked like I was 18 years old. Uh -huh. And, um, but uh, the same thing with The Equalizer, that was a show that sort of skewed to an older audience mm -hmm. as main character. But Edward was an older, older man. Um, so they didn't, but they didn't realize when the executive producer, after they hired me, when he met me, he was like, you're too young to write this, this series. But uh, but they let me, and uh, they were very happy. That ran for one year. That 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 is amazing. So then, after you moved from the Equalizer, what was the next step forward? There are still two more two more seasons that I did uh, of different shows, and then I had an, my agent. He said to me, 
Well, um, no, I'm sorry. So before that, so while writing those, those uh, TV series, I wrote a TV movie for NBC, which was made, produced, and did a very, very high rating. It really, did really well. And, uh, and that time I ran some other TV movies. And then my agent said to me, have you ever thought about writing? Nah, I'm doing that backwards. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay. So, uh, but before you continue, before you continue, TV series. Okay, before you continue, I just want to tell you that we want to definitely make sure that we get because we're sitting here, we're here with you, and we want to get your history for posterity on our podcast. So that's why I'm going through the steps, and also it helps young filmmakers coming through mm -hmm. to know what's happening. So go ahead. We're real interested. We're 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 um, honored to have you on. Thank you very much. Well, um, yeah, we got out, I got out of film school, uh, 20 years old, got his first job writing a TV movie, and it was, uh, it was, it was a TV movie, and it didn't get made. Most things that you write don't get produced, because one thing to invest how much money into a script, but another thing to invest the millions and millions of dollars into a movie. So anyway, so I didn't get one made, uh, for NBC, highly rated thing. And then that's when my agent said, have you considered writing for TV series? And being naive, I said, well, I mean, isn't writing a TV movie better? He said, well, make a lot more money writing TV series. So I went the TV series route by writing Tanya Lacey, which got, and then, um, did that equalizer and then two more seasons on different shows. And then I, uh, decided that although TV series were great to write for because you see what you wrote every day performed by the actors. Mm -hmm. Although it was great for that, it was still kind of limiting. And so I moved into uh, features. The way to that is I had an idea for a, a feature uh, that eventually did get made. But the idea for the feature, feature which was what happens when a father suspects that his son may be a serial killer or maybe it's actually a follow this. That's crazy. Anyway, took that idea, pitched it to a producer, we took it to a studio, and then I got my first job um, writing a feature film. Okay. And um, yes, yeah, so, so that's that's how that went. Then wrote some different features, um, none of which got made. They used to get paid for them, but they don't get made. And then, um, and then I was getting once made. My first hit one was Deep Blue Sea. Oh. Okay. Okay. So Deep Blue Sea, 1999, $82 million budget, $164 million worldwide. And I have questions because this is one of the first films where a black character in a horror film doesn't die at the beginning of the film or somewhere in the film. Samuel Jackson bit it, but LL Cool J lived, right? The only other one that I see that's not really credited is the Jason movie where oh. Dudley from the different, different strokes yeah. ran his way right out of the right out of the uh, okay. scene and ran right into uh, being a preacher at a church. <laughs> you know, so in real life, he ran right out of the Seen and he was never seen. And Jason, Jason tilted his head 
over and looked at him. Now, when the next, the next following Jason films, when the black guy came up, the running didn't get a, didn't get him away. Jason had learned, but in that one, he turned and looked. Dudley ran right out, started the church. We want to shout out to our faithful watcher, Shining Hicks, who gave us that information when we asked, "Whatever happened to Dudley?" He ran right out the film, and it did that. But this one right here, LL lives, and this is the question that I have for you: Was Samuel L. Jackson's character Russell Franklin and LL's character Preacher were they written explicitly, uh, uh, especially for or explicitly for them to be black characters, or was it something where it was a white character and they just cast Samuel L. and LL Cool J in those parts, in those roles? Yeah, it was completely on purpose. Um, one thing is Samuel Jackson had worked with Renny Holland previously, mm-hmm. and they had always wanted to uh, continue to work together. Um, so we also we like to cast against type. So we like the idea of having a, a billionaire um, and the pe- person that owned all the stuff going around it, and that be a black person. And Alakuje uh, was all, all, also intended to be black, in that um, he. And we wanted to make uh, a blue-collar type of environment for deep blue sea. And uh, it just seemed perfect testimony that would be a chef, for example. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we intended to be a black person. We also thought if we, we like the idea of having one black person be killed, and it'd be shocking because you, you never expect Samuel Jackson to be killed so early in the movie. And uh, and then they had one survive at the end. Mm-hmm. So was then. Ella Kuje, by the way. Okay. Ella by the way, is uh, very, not only very nice, but um, he's very thankful because this was his first big role in anything. And uh, when, he, when I see him, he tells me, um, you know, he says, I'm your responsible for my career. He's very, very grateful and very humble. And uh, he's, he's very. He's religious and quiet, but he also can be very much. Oh, okay. That, that, see, now that's a little tidbit for those who... Mm-hmm. That's like one degree of separation away from LL Cool J, for those who didn't need it. Right, right. Um, so, why did you choose... I mean, it was done purposefully, but was that an answer to the uh, black critics or to people who were clamoring, black people who were clamoring, saying, why do we always die in horror films? Was that an answer to that, or was that just something that you just, it just felt good and it it felt right for the movie, and that's why you did it? Here's the thing about new Cherry Vanilla Coke. Though Cherry's named first, all the flavors taste just as great. I mean, it could have just as easily been Vanilla Cherry Coke, or it could have been Coke Cherry Vanilla. And since it's two amazing flavors of Coke, it might have been Coke Vanilla Cherry Coke or Cherry Vanilla Coke Coke. Mm, unless you're in France, which would make it Le Coke de la Vanilla de la Cherry de la Creme. New Cherry Vanilla Coke, so good together. And New Cherry Vanilla Coke Zero Sugar, same great taste, zero sugar. Yeah, it just felt good and it felt felt right. And I wasn't uh, interested in making history with it. I just wanted it to be. You know, I was, I've been accustomed to casting black characters and, and doing TV, uh, TV shows like um, uh, Cuba Green Jr. I cast him on this show I did called Mancusa FBI. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he told me that it was, it was the first 
character that you played that wasn't a gangster. Right. And uh, instead, he was an ally. So, you know, so I've been used to and accustomed to, to doing that. Like I said, my first text screenplay was about black and white sharecroppers in Alabama. So uh, I've, I've been accustomed to, to writing to minorities. Mm-hmm. So, and uh-huh. when we get to it later, I talked about how we did that in uh, Lesbian, Lesbian Okay, yeah, we're going we're to get there because the next question has to do with Valentine and how you use a certain trope in Valentine and also within Loves Me, Loves Me Not. Um, so let's move on. Let's move on with that. Okay, so Valentine, 2001, released uh, on in Valentine, February in Valentine's Month. It is a Cupid masked yeah. slash slasher murderer yeah. Who, find, who was jilted or ignored as a young uh, adolescent or maybe a, a sixth grader or junior high school or whatever, and then it comes back and you really don't know who's actually doing the killing and you still don't know in the end because it seemed like it needed a sequel to be able to figure out what was going, who actually did what. But tell us about the uh, turnaround of uh, a turnaround in Hollywood concerning scripts. The, reno- the original writer of Gemini Man, uh, Darren Lemke, talked of his experience of writing the original script for Gemini Man, but then his original script was not was what was done ten years later. And it says within the uh, W within uh, Wikipedia that yourself. You were not the original writer uh, chosen to do Valentine, but they, the the studio didn't like what the original writers did, so they hired you and another person to write this script. So, talk talk about the turnaround because you kind of alluded to it a little bit when you said that some things don't get made. Explain how that happens in Hollywood that someone might be uh assign the writing job but then all of a sudden someone else winds up writing the film and getting the film greenlit from off of the script right on this on this particular one that is kind of backwards uh, what happened with valentine is that first of all the producer of valentine was sitting in an airport looking at paper paperback books for sale and he saw this book of valentine and he liked the cover of it, and he figured out that Valentine's Day was going to be on a Friday, so he thought they could make a lot of money not looking at the book at all, but just taking his title and releasing it on Valentine's Day. Uh, and in fact, it did open really, really, open number one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way after he saw the paperback, he uh, sent it to me, and um, and basically, I created a pitch, and I pitched it to, to um, Artisan, which did Blair Witch products, and also to Warner Brothers. Um, Artisan wanted to buy it, which they did. I was going to direct it as well. Mm-hmm. But then it, um, Artisan lost a lot of money on a Roman Polanski film, and they had not made Blair Witch Project yet. So they... Um, they were in low money and they decided not to proceed with, with the script that I wrote. Then it went over to, so they paid me not to direct it. Okay. Then it went over to Warner Brothers and they greenlit it. So I got a bonus for that. 
but then they brought in somebody else, a couple, I think, to, uh, to, to rewrite, rewrite it. I would say to transmogrify, transmogrify it. In other words, to basically not do nice things to it. Okay. And it was, uh, became more of a slasher film and less of a, less of comedic type moments that were there before. And, and I, and the ending was more clear in, uh, in my version. Okay. But, um, but then, you know, but the movie did get made, it did well, and people are happy with it. Well, you know what? Wiki- well, you know what? Wikipedia has to switch that around then, because they said that it came to you after it came from them, right? And it did say that you were supposed to direct it. Then they switched over to the writing team that did it. Then it came back to you. That's what it says in Wikipedia. So they have to straighten that out. You know, that's 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 bad. Yeah. That's yeah. bad. Uh, bad research on their part. Which makes me look bad. But anyway, okay, here we yeah, go. Yeah. So, <laughs> So uh, next comes 2003. Yeah, okay, next next comes uh, 2003 and Out of Order: The Ups and Downs of a Husband and Wife's uh, Screenwriting Team. She's clinically depressed. He's having an affair. Wayne Powers describes it as a story about the beauty and brutality of a long-term marriage. This lasted for one season, but. What I noticed from the research was that it goes into syndication into other markets and also into other countries. Explain the syndication and the uh, royalties game to the people, to uh, young people who want to be screenwriters. Well, the way, the way it was filed order, the order was financed. Um, not by Showtime directly, but through by a um, company, Hallmark Company, which makes various TV movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they usually make very pretty um, um, G-rated um, movies that are completely unlike Out of Order, which has a lot of uh, sex in it, nudity in it, some violence, crying, drug use, etc., etc. And uh, so when the movie got made, Hallmark said, we don't want anything more to do with it. Um, thank you very much. So Showtime picked up the remaining five episodes they paid for it themselves. As a result of this, when it came to DVDs and various things like that, even syndication, they were, they were only able to do the pilot because the two-hour pilot um, was financed by Hallmark. So Hallmark was able to sell it to another company that then put it in syndication. Mm-hmm. And that's probably more complicated than, than it is, but uh, um, that's what happens. Uh, syndication is usually, a, you know, I've done other shit series, they've all been in syndication, and what's fun is when you get a check from the writer's bill, it's a green envelope, and you don't know until you open it whether it's a, you know, $15 for a foreign a screening of one of the TV series that were made years and years ago, or if it's going to be a much better one for, um, for say, the Italian job at HBO. Wow. That's so now, you, you brought us right to it. The Italian job, 2003. Uh, Wayne Powers uh, co wrote this. It's $176 million, United States, Canada, and worldwide grossed. Uh, budget was $60 million. 
what was that like to take a to build a potential franchise with the uh, jobs name, uh, the, the the Italian job, and then later it was supposed to be the Brazilian job, and I have a question about that too. But what was that like to build a potential franchise and off of an original film that you and the other co-writer had not initially seen? What was that like, and how did you know that you had the script that was going to that they were going to say yes to in green light? Yeah, and there were about um, five different writers before me on the Italian job, and I ended up doing my version, not any of those versions. Okay. Um, and um, so, what's your question? Oh, the question is, what does it? What did it feel like to uh, create a script and then get it greenlit from uh, from the Italian job that you hadn't seen the original? But then you create something that grosses 106, $176 million dollars uh, uh, globally. Yeah, well, the uh, writing of the script, as far as thinking about it being a franchise, was the same as uh, and would, if, the same as if one is thinking about a franchise. I mean, there was some discussion about it in sort of a hopeful kind of way, but. Um, but it didn't change the way that it was written. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't really get made a lot of money. It started as a British film. And they sent me a British film, and the British film was completely different than the American film. The British film, the only thing that was similar is the they had a traffic jam with traffic lights. That was the, and they, and they had Mini Coopers for the mm -hmm. cars. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, and so um, they had this this idea that it could uh, get something was very beloved in, in England. They loved that movie in England, mm -hmm. the original. And uh, so they thought, well, at least we'll get some foreign money out of it. And uh, turned out that they got more domestic money out of it than foreign. Okay. Mm -hmm. But so, how does that feel to have such a mega? Hit with uh, with an ensemble cast. It was great. I mean, first of all, I thought it was brilliantly cast, and um, you know, I'd seen most staff in a Broadway play, and uh, and recommended him. I'd like to think of some small part in, in his getting hired. It was his first film, mm -hmm. and um, you know the. the we, and I had Don Sutherland on that, which was great because it was the first, you know, when I mentioned to my parents who are older, when we mentioned to them, you know, Mark Wahlberg and stuff, they don't know those names. When I mentioned Don Sutherland, they were thrilled that they uh, had an ass somebody that they, that they grew up with as, uh, as an actor. Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing is that uh, Mark Wahlberg was... He was, what he did was the first person on the call list, which is what you send into what everybody uses to see when they're supposed to arrive on a set, thing like that. Mm -hmm. The first person on the call list, the star of the show, is called the number one. And Mark Lover was a really good number one. He uh, told me that he was going to be really perfect to a screenplay because it's an ensemble, 
if one of the other actors sort of went off course, they would have to go back on course because he would be sticking to his line. Okay. As a writer, he loved, loved to hear it kind of, and he was a super, um, super good guy, and a super nice guy, and uh, very supportive. Jeff Green was perfect, very on, very on target from the beginning. They're just a, a great group of people, and they know it so well. So I feel like did a very good job of uh, making a cast that was that filled all the all the spots. Okay. So let's get to why we're all here. Now that we have that background, you know what I mean? We had a context. So let's get to Loves Me, Loves Me Not. Now within the Loves Me, Loves Me Not, I noticed that you use uh, a trope that you used within Valentine, right? Which is the pulling of the daisy, loves oh. me, or the flower, loves me. Loves me not. Was that purposely? Did you purposely do that to uh, connect the two films, or is that just something that just because, of course, people use flowers to pull the petals? But did you use that to connect people back to Valentine? Uh, not intentionally. In fact, I uh, not that recently saw the trailer for the original Valentine. And, uh, and I thought it wasn't or not, I'd completely forgotten that I put that, put that in there. Mm -hmm. And, um, since I had prints. And so I, I kept it purely clinking, obviously it was in some part of my mind to do it, but, uh, it's nice sort of having a throwback something you really know. Yeah. Um, besides breaking a 12 year hiatus, did you believe Hollywood, the world, needed a film uh, that's this daring during the Me Too and Enough movement era? You mean for me as now? Yes, yes, exactly. Oh. Um, I think that it didn't really affect the way I wrote it because it was written before the uh, Me Too, Harry Weinstein type of thing. And, uh, and I think that, you know, there were no characters in there that were like, um, that were sexually harassing her or anything like that. So I just think it's just, uh, I, I wouldn't be interested in telling that story. You know, it's about the being misadventurous. Yeah. And, uh, and it's outrageously sexy and it has you know, a bunch of nerdy wells who are inappropriate, unattainable, but unmanageable. And uh, I was really, I mean, the stories are true and I was interested in, in men, sort of modern, it's sort of a cross between looking for Mr. Good Bar if you've seen that movie mm -hmm. and Sex in the City mm -hmm. and it's sort of between those two and, uh, and it's a dark comedy. No, but I'm thinking more about what's behind the scenes. Like, you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein, he's caused a lot of damage, in my opinion, to the Hollywood structure uh, with the women coming out now and uh, exposing what he was doing. But how hard have you found, how hard did you find it for the female actors to be willing to be uh, nude within this Me Too enough era. That's what I'm getting at more. Yeah, what I did was 
In fact, we did an out of order, which, which had a, a lot of nudity in it with, um, with Felicity Huffman and with Kim Dickens and with Eric Stoltz and, and that kind of thing. Um, what I first do is I describe it very clearly in the script. And I'm very clear right from the beginning when first talking to an actress on the phone or even to the agent that is there anything in the script that she would not be comfortable in doing. And so, and then once you sort of accept the script for how it is, you have to have the actress sign a nudity waiver. Nudity waiver, you describe exactly what you will kind of you're planning on having on the, for the actress, uh, on, on another case for an actor. And, uh, you're very precise about it and they sign it and that they approved it. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of safety nets for, for the actor or actress and, uh, we abide by them. It, so, it is, I mean, you recognize it as being a very brave thing um, to do in a film. And I think that, you know, it was very, for some scenes in there, it was very important for me. The community had a reason to be there. Like in the breakup scene, it was about, it, it made her so much more vulnerable. And, um, and so I, I consider it to be an essentially, essential scene that had nudity in it. The hands have nudity in it. Mm-hmm. Has uh, I'm going to assume this, but you tell me if I'm wrong or not. Within this question here, has digital made filmmaking easier and more affordable than when shooting on film? And definitely, it's made it a lot, a lot less expensive for a lot of different reasons. You know, for one thing, it's the film stock and. The only thing you would be digital is because it's so easy to, because you're not spending money on the film, because the film, the, the digital is essentially very cheap. You tend to take many extra takes or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that can be more time consuming and that kind of stuff. But I think that digital, um, you know, in, in this, this, my film wouldn't have been possible. To shoot on film was much more expensive, and uh, and uh, and everything about digital is, is, has become uh, has become more impressive. And uh, so yeah, at first you could tell films that were shot on digital, but now I think it can be very difficult to tell as compared in comparison with film. It's one thing that you know I'm a, a film. Uh, kind of sore. I just watch films all the time. We watch films, and the grain, like like we went to go see and we reviewed Gemini Man. Coming back to that reference again, and what was missing out of Gemini Man, in my opinion, was the grain. The grain was missing in the film. Like you know, the it, it was it was almost as if you were looking at the original uh, 1080p, even though it was uh, 4K. But it looked like you were looking at the original 1080p that Sony created where it was just crystal clear imaging and it was like you were there because it was in 3D. That was fine. But the grain is missing. Do you miss the grain or in your editing process, do you add the grain in as an artificial uh, effect to give the film more? Yeah, you do do add. Yeah. I, I miss the grain. I mean, I think that that sort of 70s, 1970s book is, uh, is sort of superior because there's something about it that makes you, 
I realized that the film and uh, not just look, you're not just looking through the window. Mm-hmm. You're looking at a place that can be pretty and uh, just I, I think it, I think it's very very good. Um, so I would I, my preference would be that. But what you do is they have different modes in, in the computer when you're cutting the film that you can add grain to it and it's become very close to being the real thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because I noticed that in your film, you had areas that were like on the swing. It was clear, but then at the same time, I saw areas where there was grain, which gave it gave the scene more. I'm going to use the wrong word here, but to me, it was more gravitas because it kind of threw you back to a period of when grain was king, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's certain things that constantly you intentionally add more grain than in other times in the show symbolizes to me a more documentary feel to it. Mm-hmm. More, um, a more reality feeling to it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also what you do is you, you choose a different setting um, for the grain. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about Loves Me, Loves Me Not. The premiere happens at the 9th Annual Studio City International Film Festival this Saturday, the 9th of November. Let's talk about what are you looking forward to? Are you looking forward? Are you going to sit in the back and watch the audience's reaction to the film? Are you more excited about it just premiering? Or are you excited about getting back into the business of filmmaking as a director? Yeah, it had been about 10 years since I uh, directed that film. And I was saying my Instagram, and my Instagram is Wayne Powers Filmmaker. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to call myself a filmmaker, I have to make another film. And mm-hmm. so I jumped, jumped right, right on it. So I basically um, call out the film and um, and finance the film, co-finance the film with my brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he took sort of a big chance with it. It's showing, by the way, at 1 p.m. on Saturday at the Lenley NOHL, which is North Hollywood Theater. And uh, I will definitely be in the audience. I love seeing what the audience's reaction is to it. And I'm also a little bit nervous because I'm hoping that they'll laugh in the right places and be stunned in the right places. Yeah, that, that's all. Because, that's uh, all. Yeah. You know, you know the, the, the metaphor. The metaphor in it is mad good, right? Opening up with it. But here, here's a question before we get to that, because we're gonna when we, when we finish interviewing you, we're going to review the film. So I don't want to take anything away from the review. So I'll leave that right there. But anyway, you've co-written before you, but you co-wrote this with Lisa Penny. You've directed episodes yes. of Out of Order. But how does it feel to not only direct, but co-write, produce as an independent filmmaker this time? Well, I mean, it's, it's a real challenge. And my producer, Rashid Siemens, yeah. he was, uh, it wouldn't have been able to be done without his expertise in doing um, low, low budget movies, of which he's made quite a number of. And uh, every time he made another one, they were, one was more impressive than that, was more impressive than next. Mm-hmm. The next was more impressive than the earlier one. Mm-hmm. And, um, but 
without him, I wouldn't have the confidence to, because um, you're spending your own money. And he treated it like it was his own money. He treated it very secretly. And that was the only way we could have gotten it done. Well, that is a great segue because I was going to bring him in right here at this point. So, ladies and gentlemen, also on the phone is Rashid Stevens. You see his picture right up here, right along next to Wayne Powers on the broadcast. We want to say uh, good day and hello to him. And are you there, Rashid? Okay. Uh, first question for you, because you come from a comedic background. And uh, you're a comic, you're a stand-up comic, right? So you understand timing, kind of like a uh, MC would understand timing as far as in filmmaking, right? So how did you first, first of all, let's go back. How did you get involved in comedy? In comedy, um, I started back in Atlanta. I mean, I would always, to say, the class final, so I mean... I really started to do comedy back in 2010 in Atlanta, Georgia, for the first time. I went to open mic. My then-girlfriend, my, uh, I thought it was having an open mic at this party that she and I was at, and I said, you know what, I always wanted to try it. I got up there, and I did horribly, and then I said, you know what, I, I, I got possibly a feature in this, so I just kept trying, and then eventually, a year later, I moved out to L.A., and I started pursuing comedy like four times. Okay. And, uh, you know, the rest of okay. If, if you have your listening device up, if you could turn it down and then just listen through the phone so we can have a clear signal, because I kind of heard, but I just want to make sure so it'll be a clear signal for you. Um, so how yeah, did you? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 good. I mean, I was always hearing you, but I could hear something in the background. Um, so you, how did you transition from, how, how long had you been doing comedy and then what made you decide to get into independent filmmaking? Um, I guess, it, as a comedy, you're always a storyteller. I mean, especially me, I'm a storyteller. I'm not, I'm not a joke, joke, joke. I, I, I like to talk about stories about how I grew up and stuff and activities that I experienced and I like to bring them to bring light of it. So mm -hmm. I think for me, it, was, it happened naturally. It was like almost just an inherited thing or doing comedy that I uh, transitioned to filmmaking because I said I always to so you know, I looked up to Eddie Murphy and all these people and so uh, I like to, I always had in mind that I wanted to transition into film. So um, it's funny, I so I, I met Wayne uh, two years in 2019. Okay. 2014. Uh, 2014 and 15. I, I always had this in my mind. I was at an open mic one day, and he, he was saying he's a filmmaker, and he kind of almost just gave me an epiphany moment. I was like, you know what? So I started talking to him about films and stuff, and it inspired me to write my own, you know? So I didn't have any prior experience about writing scripts or what I would do. I would sneak inside LA Film School on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> I met a couple of students that would go there and I would and I would sneak in the library and read those scripts. And I would use those scripts to start learning use them as templates to learn how to write my own scripts. So I would do that every day for like six months. So I just started writing scripts on my own and as I was doing comedy at nighttime and doing the daytime in between work I would sneak inside LA Film School and write scripts. Mm -hmm. So that's how it all kinda of started. That was the foundation of it and um I knew I didn't, as an actor, because you know, I started going to smack, too. I knew I didn't like to 
I, at this particular time, it's much better than when I first got here. You had all these groups that, for actors like me and filmmakers, they were perpetually stereotyped. So I knew, being a conscious man that I am, I didn't want to do that. So I was like, I want to control my own narrative. Okay. So, you know, being a hustler I am, when I the hood, I was always resourceful. So I just started gathering all my resources from the filmmakers I met. I like film school, I started saying, let's put things together and start making our own films and stuff. So that's how it all begun. Mm-hmm. So, are you originally from Rasheed Atlanta? Also, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Wayne. Rashid also cast me in one of his films in a stereotypical way. I was the white pimp. <laughs> <laughs> white pimp. So, are you originally from Atlanta, Rashid? Yes, I was born and raised there. Okay, so what was the transition like leaving Atlanta, which is basically Chocolate City? and landing in uh, Los Angeles? Uh, it was quite an interesting uh, transition. I uh, I moved out here, I drove my car. I drove my car in 2001, I and uh, I drove out here basically on an adrenaline of dreams with no money. So I ended up spending my first year and a half in uh, Los Angeles home with money in my car. And, um, I was like, I, 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 my thing is, you love anything unconditionally, you, you, it, it don't matter if you don't let anything or any kind of hurdle or get in your way. So it was like, that car was just only temporary. I had that in my mind, say, you know what, this is only a temporary phase. So I was always in tech. I would get up at 4 a.m. in the morning and go out there searching for my dreams, looking for work, trying to find who to connect with, trying to find my business, trying to find open mics. So I was always constantly on my grind. But it, it was a tough road, but I, I, if I could go back up and change it, it would definitely help who I am today. Mm-hmm. Now, Sunset Boulevard, right? Sunset Boulevard is such an interesting street in uh, Los Angeles. It's, uh, I mean, just the smell of it. I mean, like when I, when I, when I describe uh, Sunset, when I describe being there and, uh, and being one block away from Hollywood Boulevard and all that, and, and the way I describe it to people, I always look for it to be in film. And when I see the grittiness of films, I'm like, they're capturing not only what it looks like, but what it smells like. That's why I always ask people, what does it smell like? What did it look like? How does it feel? Being there and living from out of your car, and I know that you uh, frequented Sunset quite often, because that's that's like within the hub of everything. What, what Tell the people what that experience of Sunset Boulevard is like for young people who want to travel out, who have the dream to be in Hollywood. Tell them what Sunset Boulevard is like. Um, it, it depends on what part of Sunset Boulevard you are. So the, the smell could be like almost shake up to like flowers, but you got a different, you got various of smells. So um, as far as like the, the scenic is magical. Uh-huh. It's definitely magical. It's a magical, mystical place. You get to meet so many people. You never know who you run into. I run into it. Everybody and their mother on Sunset Boulevard. I, I met a bit of. I think I saw everybody on Sunset Boulevard because you got all the comedy clubs, a lot of comedy clubs there on the western part of um, Sunset Boulevard. Then on more the eastern side, you got more of like the artsy districts or the actors hang out at and stuff. Or uh, the mid part of it, you see a lot of uh, agents. And so, it, it, I mean, it's a magical place. It's like everything. It's very magical. 
Mm -hmm. going on a yellow brick road and you just seeing everything and everyone and experiencing everything. So I, I definitely lost myself on board. It starts out a yellow brick road, but then it starts to get a little more dingy. And the first, oh, <laughs> but okay. So, um, so yeah, what was so so uh, loves <laughs> loves me loves me not. What was the casting like? And being that you were the producer, because the producer, we, we learned at film school, the producer is the person that goes out there and gets everything basically free, right? Locations, uh, get the people to feed the people for free. We're going to give you credit in the film. Free, free, free. We're going to try to get it. So as the producer and Wayne as the filmmaker and Rashid as the producer, what was the casting like and how did you pull the behind the scenes together to make this group a family enough to deliver this excellent film that you have? Well, a great advantage of having Rasheed was that we got to, we had the whole network of um, black um, people in, 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 in behind the film. So we had a black, uh, two black co-producers, black executive producer, hairstylists, set directors. There's a very diverse um, crew both in front and behind the camera, which was important to me. Mm -hmm. okay. So that was definitely, uh, it was definitely a, a very uh, diverse set, you know, and, and it was a good producer because Wayne was definitely open to everything, so it was a great um, collaboration between here and I because we definitely put in front and behind the camera, you had it looked like what the world looked like. It was definitely a representation of uh, what the world should be, too. I mean, how it should be treated as far as we're talking about economics and stuff. So, and, and, and hiring on film sets, because we had up to one white like, woman to, you know, so yeah, it was enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, at first, it was very important to, uh, to both of us. We had in the town, we had uh, a wheel down. Um, person that was really played by a real fear bound person. Um, and we had, uh, the main character, the black best friend, about the black baby, a child, I mean, black black child. We had a, we had a Russian lesbian, a, uh, Iranian. Yeah. It's been very much like a transgender. Yeah. He's been transgender. There you go. No, no, no. Uh, no. Here, here. And what I felt like, we, in the in reality, Malibu, which is a film takes place, is only four percent non-white. So I decided to make a film that was not the way the thing is all, but the way things should be. And uh it's more uh it's more like Los Angeles itself as opposed to uh Malibu when it came to uh, uh minority casting, but I mean character probably out. Mm -hmm. Um you know I I I I I love when you said that it was diverse. But I usually use multiculturalism and multicultural, and this is why. Why? Because that when you look up the definition of what diverse really means, it means for every five black people, there's one white person to patrol them. So that's what diverse or diversity means in actuality. I know people use it in a different way because there's a connotative and a denotative meaning, but. In actuality, it means for every five black people, there's one white person to patrol. It came from the slave codes. But so that I always say multiculturalism, but I get what you're saying and I appreciate the heart in which the you two men are doing this film. Right. So um, 
So the next question uh, to you is, how did the the uh, transsexual? I don't. I, I want to make sure I say the right words here. The transsexual that you have in the film. How did you? How were you able to convince the person to be in a safe place to? put something out that's usually so taboo and behind the scenes because you're opening up many different discussions within this film which I think is timely and it's right now yeah I feel comfortable with it from the beginning made it real, real clear it's not the first time she's done uh, something like in, not in, in a mainstream film but uh he wasn't uncomfortable with it at all. Mm-hmm. And then, um, there, then I have you on the phone, and you have uh, such a film that doesn't cross the line. But I'm going to ask you this: Why is there a taboo, or is there still a taboo of having porno stars in mainstream films? Is there still a taboo, or has that uh, faded, or have the lines blurred? Well, what do you think, Rashid? Oh, I, I think it's, in my opinion, I feel that there is slightly a little bit of it, but it's not as much as it used to be. Because, I mean, with the, the, the new wave of social media and stuff, it's allowing um, a door for everybody to be included and stuff, even though we're still fighting. So I don't think it's as taboo as it used to be, but uh, I think that's what I love about this generation and stuff. This, there's so much stuff that is more welcome that it wasn't welcome before and stuff. So I, I definitely think it has grown tremendously, but it still needs more work. But I mean, cause I, <laughs> yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah, I don't think it's as capital as it used to be. I mean, because I always thought, I said that if the person can act, have them cross over, or is it something where people took a, that actors or actresses took offense to people uh, crossing over to mainstream film. Is that is that what it was? Or did the directors think that the directors in, in porn are no good or whatever? And that's why it hadn't crossed until around this time here? What was the thinking? What, what, was, what was the psychology back then? I think Wayne, you would be able to answer that more for me from a perspective. Yeah, I think that the, uh, I didn't know that she had done pornography until a lot she was back. Okay, no, 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 stop, stop, wait, 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 I didn't, I, I didn't know about her doing porn either, I'm just asking, I'm just asking perspective, I'm not talking about her, I just happened to move off of her being a transsexual into talking about porn, but I didn't know that, but I'm just asking just in general, I'm not trying to put any aspersion on anything, because I didn't know. I really didn't. So I just wanted to know what the perspective was back then on uh, why the uh, a porn star could not cross over. Well, I think that, like what she was saying, I think that that, that has uh, changed over time. I think that there have been examples like a Steven Soderbergh movie uh, recently that, um, that had a porn, porn star as the lead in it. And I think that that, I think you just go with the talented. I think a lot of the porn stars would not be good because they're just not good actresses at all. <laughs> um, but, but when they're good actors, then here's what, they, what they've done in the past. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, you know what? Can I add on? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I actually think now, you know, with foreign stars, especially and with media and stuff, it actually is kind of helpful to some independent filmmakers or sometimes even big filmmakers because now, if you remember, foreign used to be controlled by, he had a studio, but now you have people that make home videos and stuff and they become very lucrative and they get huge following. So now, you guys. You got people like producers and stuff that want to bring people when they got followers. And a lot of these, these self-made porn stars now make their own tapes. And some of them are actually pretty good actors compared to them. <laughs> so these the, the new wave of, 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 I can create my own and put it out without uh, having this gatekeeper and stuff is going. So I think now actually, I know a person, I know this girl who actually is an actress slash porn star. But she has a huge following too on social media because people watch our home make videos off our cell phone. Mm. So, so uh, switching gears, talking about the co, well, one of the co-stars, uh, Georgia Rain. She's a uh, R&B artist also. But what I wanted to tell you was, every time she hit the screen, she had this. Uh, uh, aura or presence like a Lieutenant Aurora, uh, uh, Nicole Nichols type, and I wanted to definitely tell you that she should be in a film that you do that where she is a lead character, where the where the story wraps around her because she has every time she came on the screen, it appeared that she stole the scene, coming on being the more conservative friend to the more. Uh, out there alley so to speak so I just wanted to tell you that, that from what I saw she looked like she could really shine in a lead character role yeah I've already talked to Georgia about finding one and uh, she's already trying to with, with me and her also trying to get uh, funding for an idea that I have where she would be the where she would be the she's, ter- she's terrific and you know she was also nominated at the lead for Grammy. Oh, nice. uh, oh. right. And she's a great singer. Yeah, yes, yeah, she is. I, I've checked out some of her stuff, and I saw her in a studio video that she did on Instagram with some guys. She wrote a song for them, and the song was banging. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing her music out there more and more. Mm-hmm. So what's next? What do you? Uh, what are you looking to do as far as film? How far do you look for this film to go? Well, we're hoping the film will be seen by as many people as possible. We're in the process of finding a seller who is then find a distributor for it. And, um, but, uh, I think that, you know, Rashid has done a really good job of having his stuff be seen in many different formats. Maybe you want to talk about that, Rashid? Uh, talk about my prior events, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I got a couple of distribution deals I did with some of my independent films. So, but yeah, we're, we're going to definitely have Possible and, and share it to the most audience possible. That's 
that's the possibility that we're working on right now. Okay, and are you casting for any more films and how do they get in contact with both of you and how would they learn about the next films that you're casting? Okay, say, say that one more time for them. Wayne underscore powers underscore filmmaker. Wayne underscore powers underscore filmmaker on IG. And then what about you, Rashid? Um, yeah, actually, I I'm, uh, I just wrapped a feature film last week that I've been filming for like two months. Just sharing it for this romance about uh, prison reform. Call up between forever. Um, that is, comes out next year. We're going to work in diligently and really hard in post production. And it's going to hit. We already, we already got like a 500 um, agreement. So hopefully we get more. But uh, I'm doing that. And then I'm gearing up to film another uh, feature film coming in January. So uh, yeah, I'm always working, you know, and always trying to collaborate with Man Wayne. Uh, but the best way to get in contact with me would be right now because I deleted all my social media for uh, a couple of weeks so I can get focused. Uh, the best way to get in touch with me right now would be through email. My email is uh, Rashid, that's the R-A-S-H-E-E-D, and my middle initial H, and then my last name, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S at gmail.com, so it's Rashid H. Stevens at gmail.com. All right, that's always the fastest way to meet, you know, email is still very important even though some people don't think so these days but yes it's very important so people for those who are just tuning in we have been interviewing Wayne Powers Hollywood writer producer director and Rashid Stevens Hollywood producer independent filmmaker both are independent filmmakers now right so we would like to thank both of you for uh, calling in for this interview and we're getting ready to get off with you so that we can go ahead and show this quick package of what Wayne has done leading into Loves Me, Loves Me Not so that we can review Loves Me, Loves Me Not. And again, we would like to thank you for calling in. It has been a pleasure. And for the young filmmakers out there, Wayne, you are invaluable. Rashid, just your just your presence and moving forward in the independent vein is an inspiration for young filmmakers. So I want to thank you both. All right, thank you. God bless. All right. To your listeners, listen by mistake. To listen by mistake. Persevere. 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 Determination. Thank you very much. You. We will talk again. It's very nice. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. All right, people. So for those who are just tuning in, we just finished with Wayne Powers and and Rashid, Wayne Powers and Rashid Stevens, right? They are independent filmmakers with Hollywood bona fides who are uh, who have a new film out called Loves Me, Loves Me Not, right? And so we're going to uh, run this package real quick. And then we're going to come back and uh, talk to you about 
the film itself loves me, loves me not. But for you, for those who were just a little bit asleep and didn't realize who we were talking to, we're going to show you in this quick package that I cut up about who we were talking about right here, Wayne Powers. The plan was flawless. The next 45 minutes, we own this place, gentlemen. Okay, Steve, it's right above you. The heist was perfect. The escape was clean. But before they can save millions of lives... Tell me I didn't see that. They recognized that gun. It's impossible. Sharks do not swim back as they can't. They'll have to find a way to save their own. Inside the mind of the perfect father, <laughs> things aren't always so perfect. Happy Thanksgiving. The one day of the year. She loves me not. Everyone is afraid to be alone. She loves me. Is Valentine's Day. He loves me not. He loves me. Loves me? Loves me not. Hi, Mom. I spent another day with that guy I was telling you about. And uh, I think this one's a keeper. is who we were speaking to, Wayne Powers, right? And the film that he has out, produced by uh, Rashid Stevens, as I bring the uh, logo up here so you can see it, is called Loves Me, Loves Me Not. Let me send it there a little bit more so you can see it. So we are very honored to have had him call in and interview with us and we went extensive because we believe in teaching the next generation and how best to teach the next generation right. and to have people who are actually producing right. and making it happen in Hollywood then right. that's the best way to go right okay so loves me loves me not right the film opens with a metaphor right which I don't want to get into because we want you to see this film, right? Isabel Chester as Ali Silver yes. is in a kind of depression, looking for love while mourning. It's not too clear what she's mourning about until about two thirds into the film, right? Which is a director's choice, right? right? But you you you, you kind of get it, and then it all comes full circle, right. right? So it comes back around, and you say, "Oh, that's what it is." And so yeah. then when you watch it again, then you see yeah. things, and you see images that you didn't really recognize what yeah. they were for. You thought yeah. it was one way, yeah. but in actuality, it's another way. Beautiful filmmaking there. Yeah. Um, let me see. Uh, she goes backwards. She goes backwards in love interest right. until she meets David DeLuise, Detective uh, Pearly, right? Mm -hmm. Detective Pearly, very interesting guy, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. He 
But well, we don't want to give it away. Oh, give it away. So you have to see this film. Yeah, and you'll right? find yourself rooting for Allie because I did, you know. And um, and as she go through her journey, mm -hmm. you know, in the film, looking, you know, and she's looking for love. So really, really good. Her life falls into a drug and sex crazed, crazy binge, right? And. She comes out. Well, you'll have to watch the film. Yes, yes. That's right. Film. She comes out, but you have to watch the film. You have to see how she comes out, right? Yes. It was kind of alluded to in the interview, right? So, standouts in the film: the cinematography, yes. the use of angles and film grammar to tell this yes. story, beautifully done, right? The use of tropes. We've seen those tropes on screens before in Wayne Powers' written scripts to film. The use of metaphor and misdirection has to be written into a script. Most notably, the loves me, loves me not trope also seen in Valentine, right? Uh, the use of sex. In my opinion, the use of sex during this era of Me Too and enough is very bold I have to give salute because I've always said that it takes a lot for a person to be uh, basically not nude but naked on screen alright so it takes a lot for the person to do that so there's a salute to that and I think that it's a smash in the mouth of all of this anti- Anti-male, yeah. I would say that it's uh, now it's an anti-male. Uh, they don't want to see the male perspective, so it's an anti-male perspective out there. They they accept it from the female perspective, but right. not from the male perspective. So I believe that loves me, loves me not right. moves counter to that. Now, plus it was well done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it went along with the storyline and the script, and it made sense and it was yeah. well placed. Yeah, it wasn't gratuitous. Right. It wasn't like, oh, let's 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 see some let's right. see some breasts. It yeah, was yeah. well done. And it went along with the storyline. It went along with the storyline. Yeah, yeah, it was agreed. tastefully done. Tastefully done. Um, surrealism in certain scenes. The film not only gives you the tropes that you're used to through uh, Wayne Powers, but it also brings a surrealism. Um, there's a movie out called Mulholland Drive, and, it, and it's very surreal, and, it, and the images, there's, there's a scene that continues on as Allie continues to go further and further down into her psychosis, right? And there's something that happens within the scene that it's good. It's good. I have to uh, give much credit to that. Um, all of this, the surreal scenes are happening in Allie's mind, right? This is not actually, if someone was to walk up to her, this would only have been happening in her mind if that happened. But the way it was, there's a beach scene, there's a hallway scene, there's a couple of more scenes, and then it comes up. There's a song on there called Septic Shock yeah. that kind of throws you back to the 80s, yeah. but it's a good song, you know, Septic yeah. Shock, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I dig it, I dig it. 
Another standout, Georgia Rain stands out. She's like I told them on the phone, a right. Lieutenant O'Hara, Nicole Nichols yeah. vibe. Yeah. She stands out. She st steals the scene yeah. as the conservative. She still sings right. as the conservative friend yeah. within the piece. Yeah. Now, here's what it is. And most people are not necessarily conscious of this. Right. But there is, you know, we always look for films and we look are there racist tropes right. or what we call bigoted tropes right. within the film? And unfortunately, there is one. There is one. The the, the trope, the bigoted trope that comes within this film is black people as the beings who disturb a white person's groove. And there's a scene in it that turns very detrimental for the white person, but it's like these, the people are set in this setting and you're like I don't know if they would actually be there you know in that setting you know but here they are and it kind of throws this person off their groove and so that right there it, it, it's it's subtle suggestion that goes into the eye gate and back into the mind and into the subconscious mind that sometimes people, even in well intent, they don't realize that they're doing it, right? We see that a lot. Even as well-meaning as this film is, with its multicultural cast, this trope is not avoided, right? Now, another situation with the film, another, um, not necessarily problematic, but there is a new term that the Gen Zers are using right and it's called boomer right so anything that the uh, the zers when their parents tell them oh you don't know about that they will use the term all right boomer oh. right to represent that it's a baby boomer now you don't even have to be a baby boomer okay. but if you're telling them oh this is something that uh you know, oh, we, we don't know that. Okay, Boomer. That's something that we don't need to know, right? So, uh, the film to me, looking okay. at it, is a film for baby boomers. Okay. Uh, no, it's a film by baby boomers for okay. Gen Xers, okay. right? Right? Okay. It's, it's 90s pacing. Uh, in this world of microwave. So it's 90s pacing and okay. film, right? In this 90s, uh, in this world, this 2019 world of, of uh, microwave. Right. It may appear slow motion with its dedication to detail because there is dedication to detail of angles and that's what makes it very unique, right? Uh, Metaphor-driven narrative. So it's dedication to detail. Metaphor-driven narrative with surreal elements, with sex and drug use, more subtly imaged in shows like Euphoria. So in the 90s, we put a lot of things right in your face, right? Whereas the film, the 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 uh, show on HBO called Euphoria. Mm -hmm. It's about the Gen Zers, oh, right? Mm -hmm. And, but the drug use is there, but it's not pounded in your face. 
So that's a little bit different, right? The millennials mm -hmm. and the Gen Zers, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, so they have to be true film lovers mm -hmm. to get it, okay. right? To, to get that, right? But, okay. but with that being said, it is a film worth watching, and I believe if it's promoted correctly, it will make a lot of money, right? So, with that being said, I have to I break films down, okay. right? So, I break films down by different things. So, with that being said, for the millennial side of it, the Gen Zers, it's a 7.5. But when you add in the technical and the through line of the metaphor, right. which I can't really say because we don't want to give away the, the film, film. Right. but the through line of the metaphor in it is a 10. So when you take 7.5, you take 10 for technical use. I'm talking about the angles, the use of detail, and the through line, which is 10. It averages out to a 9.2. Okay. So it's a 9.2 film right here on the film review. So it is well worth seeing. You will be entertained. And see, loves me, loves me not. And you know, we had a reverse interview, so you know, we gotta keep moving now because we only got a few minutes, right? All right, people, so that's Loves Me, Loves Me Not, the official review by The Film Review, Movies, Music, Culture, Politics, and Society, yes. right? Yeah. So we wanna say real quick, like, that you can hear the replays of this on these platforms right here. You can hear the replay of the film review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, Google Play, and Podcast Addict. And we're growing all the time. We want to say what's up to all of our uh, advertisers that have come on, the national and international advertisers that have come on as we build the film review. Because like we said, we're on the 83rd episode and it's moving quickly. Also, we want to shout out to Canton Jones. Yes. Canton Jones has a new song out called uh, So Glad I'm Saved. Yes. And what's so special about this is you see B. Tim's right here. You see B. Tim's right here. B. Tim's is in Las Vegas, but he used to play for Zap. You know, Roger and Zap. He was there when Roger was alive. I call it the vocalizer, but the vocator, right? And he does this on this song with uh, with uh, Canton Jones. Yes. Doug Williams is on the song. From the Williams Brothers. Right? Yep. And GCS is on the film. It is a excellent song. It incorporates hip-hop and gospel, gospel hip-hop and gospel music together. It's a yep. great fusion. And what makes it so special is... I shot all of the footage for B Tim's, and then when we sent it out, Dropboxed it out to Atlanta, they put it all together, and it looks seamless, and the picture is excellent. When you know how to use your camera, it can look like you're right there. You've seen it. What do you think about the video? Yeah, excellent video. Well done. Great song. And it, and it's it, you know yeah. I have to pat myself on the back because when I was called in they yeah. said 
can you do this? And I said, of course I can. And we got it done and we got it out in short order. And we've been waiting to praise it and put it out there and say that it's out. So it is showing on YouTube. You type in Canton Jones, so glad I'm saved video. And you can go right there. You see Doug Williams. He is the avatar on it. And you push play and you'll see my work as the uh, cinematographer camera guy on the beat Tim's portions of it syncing up and making it not syncing it but matching it up in color and color correction and all that to make it look like they were in the same place at the same time beautifully done on the edit in Atlanta all right uh Lord Land Theater. You know, we took a hiatus this week because we wanted to talk about Ken Jones and so many right. things that we're doing over here at the film review, yeah. lordlandfilms.com. That you know, I took a hiatus and I'm going to take another hiatus the following week because we're coming back with episode 14 yeah. in about two weeks. Yeah. And we're always looking for actors to be in Lordland Theater, yeah. right? Lordland Enterprises at hotmail.com. Drop your bio and your headshot. Yeah. And if you're good, and we think you're good because I can own sometimes on people. I will write something especially for you, right? And that's one of the greatest, they told us in film school, that's one of the greatest compliments that one person can do for another is to write something for them, right? Especially an actor or entertainer to write something for them. Now, people, yeah. right here, you know Deshaun Snow was yeah. on. All of these different uh, uh posters that I'm putting up right now, you can see right. uh, and listen to on iHeartRadio, right. on Google Play, right. on Apple Podcasts. Right. You can watch and you can watch us right. on YouTube and you can watch us on Vimeo and you can listen to it in right. podcast form on iHeartRadio, right. on Apple Podcasts, yeah. on Spotify, on Google Play, Podcast Addicts. I'm putting all this up so that you can see it, right? Uh, who else did we do? That oh, was Lunell. Lunell. Sean Snow, for those who may not know, is one of the original members of the Atlanta Housewives. That's right. Original first season, right? First season. And right here, of course, we have Lunell as soon as this uh, populates. Maybe I can put it up. And then, of course, we had None other than Prince's bodyguard yes. spoke to us, yes. right? Yes. OG Big Coco, yes. he spoke to us, yes. right? And he brings us stories, and all of this is on those platforms I told you about yes. on iHeartRadio, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Google Play, Podcast Addict, right? right. So, and who else did we interview, right? That, that goes into the archives and the annals uh, of uh, the film review. Um, Joaquin Castro, brother of uh, uh, Julian Castro, president right, who is running for president, right? I was about to say Julian, like the regular American name. All right. All right, people. So look, we are coming now to the top five reasons why you should not be watching you should not go see uh, the movie called Harriet, right? So this is very important here to start with. I've, I've noticed that 
You know, I have affinity for the Deltas because I've told this story before and we don't have time to tell it now, but the Deltas actually hired me as I was a DJ because, you know, usually I was being on the college campus. I was hired by the frats, the fraternities. But this is one group that actually hired me out to DJ their uh, uh, anniversary. I forget what they call it, but they just celebrated their centennial in 2013, right? Now, right here, this writing right here, you can look this up. The Deltas were, uh, there's 20, the original 22. Yeah. Some of them were AKA, right? The AKA during the time when the women's suffrage movement, they had their women's suffrage march in 1913. And the AKAs wanted to be involved in it, yeah. right? As the story goes. But there was some southern women's suffrage members that did not want them to uh, participate and if they participated they had to walk all the way in the back in the segregated section away from the parade right so while all the things was going on by the time they got up there the bandstand would be down alright so the AKA said well we're not doing it right. so members of the AKA broke away and they started their own sorority called Delta Sigma Theta, right. right? And they walked in it. But when you read this, you can Google this. Google the 1913 Women's Suffrage March Delta Sigma Theta. Google that. And this article will come up and you will be able to read this. But in the article, it says that Ida B. Wells... Mm -hmm. Ida B. Wells down here. Ida B. Wells said that she was not walking in the march to be in the back because right. aren't we women? Right. Sojourner Truth said that. Aren't I a woman? Right. Right? Why do I mm -hmm. have to walk in the back right. of something? Right? Which leads us to what's going on right now with this with this debacle. Right? This movie that's really a debacle, right? And um, let me drop this down here as we talk about this. Um, this movie is a real, it's really crazy. The Harriet movie, right? I'm going to let this go. The Harriet movie uh, came out in theaters. And we went to go see it because we have to review it, right? Nice. We had to review it, so we had to go see it. An unfortunate for me, <laughs> um, this time of year, with many people under the weather mm -hmm. and coughing and sneezing in the theater, mm -hmm. I catch a cold. Catch a cold. Look at me. Isn't Tissue. that something? Tissue. So something. this is one yeah. movie that I really could have missed. <laughs> for many different reasons. For right? many different reasons. Okay. So the top five reasons not to see this film. Number five, which I'm going to come back. I'm going to wrap this around back to the Deltas in a second when I get to number one. Number five, script, right? In 2015, Viola Davis was set to star in and produce a Harriet biopic. For some reason, it didn't happen. And now uh, uh, this woman, Cynthia Rebo, who is Igbo. Look up Igbo. Igbo. Is she? Were the yes, she is. Oh, that's right. She's Igbo, right? She's from a tribe of people who are Igbo, okay. right? Igbo were the 
slave traders in Africa. They were black who uh, enslaved people who they felt were lowly of them and also sold them to the Dutch, to the English, to the French, to the woo 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 woo. So when the slave, uh, when the mid-Atlantic slave trade happened, mm -hmm. the Igbo were involved and they would sometimes, well most of the time, they would bury their slaves alive with them to go over to the other side. Kind of like some Egyptian shit. Some of the Egyptians would have like riches and stuff. They took actual living beings. They buried them alive with the dead person. And they also sold slaves. So she comes from that, right? So she's casting this, right? And she has uh, tweets. You can go to afropunk.com and read the different tweets about Akata. We want you to look that up. A-K-A-T-A. -A -A, Akata, right? Retweets. Retweets, right? Retweets and comments on those tweets, right? Akata, making fun of the Black American English dialect, yeah. right? Looking down, but at the same time, the people who help you are the people that you're trying to look down on. Huh? Uh, psychological damage to young... Number four. Top five reasons is psychological damage to young black boys, uh, black girls, black men, black girls, because it is an anti-black male thing. How is it that it's a story about slavery and the most brutalist act, the most brutalist act is done by, by a man. black man? Right. The whites are standing around talking about brutality, but when you actually see brutality in it, right. It's like an anti-black man thing, right? right? Number three, the filmmaker, the filmmaking was below B. Right. It was a D. The cinematography isn't there. All she's doing throughout the majority, two-thirds of the film is running back and forth right. on the screen. I mean, it's not, it's not good. The scenes where the person should be emotional, which is comes to direction is not there. Number two, the acting, which comes number two, the acting is not up to the level of Oscar award-winning caliber. If anyone tries to put this woman up here to try to say that this is an Oscar-winning caliber performance, no. All right. I mean, you can. They can do it all day, but they'll be just pretty much like spitting in your face, uh, spitting in Black Americans, ADOS, Foundational Americas, African style beings on this planet. They be spitting in your face, right? Number one. Number one. The most important reason why you should not see Harriet is Comcast is the company that is distributing Harriet. And at the same time, they're trying to strike down the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which says that black people who were free or born, who were uh, slaves brought over or born in America had the same rights as white citizens and that they had the same rights to fair commerce, to, to do contracts, and that if the person tries to cheat them out of them, they will be prosecuted. They're trying to strike that down. And all of that has to do with why we move around freely today. Right? right? And 
How many of you think that that's a, a strange thing to be happening that you distribute a film about one of our heroes, heroes, but yet you're trying to strike down the Civil Rights Act that make it, makes it possible for us to move in fair, that led to the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act, 1965 Voter Rights Act, 1968 right. Fair Housing Act. And all those acts had to be done because, again, because they were not enforcing the 1866. Right, which affects you, all the other groups because they're that's right. all attached to the civil rights. Bill, that's right. So it affects everyone. You see, so so that's what people don't seem to realize. Like all the different everyone. groups, if yeah. they are able to strike down what they do to, uh, uh, are able to strike down our rights as black people in America, right. then they're going to take your rights. Yeah, away. because it's all attached to the it's civil all rights. Attached, bill. Right? It's right. all attached, right? Right. So those are the top five reasons why. Right. You should not go see Harriet. Number one, most important. And so that gets back to the Deltas, right? The Deltas are having screenings of Harriet, right? And they, you know, they're, they're celebrating the fact that they were in this women's suffrage situation that they always vote. I'm seeing these different memes. But why would you support screening a film when in actuality the, the Comcast CEO CFO and COO should all be relieved of their jobs for trying to dismantle the 1866 Civil Rights Act that protects all of us because they want to get it uh, uh, Byron Allen. Right. So there will be no more Byron Allen. Right. Right. Which is also, Trump is attached also, right? That's right. So for all of these people that's running behind to see this film and they say they're anti-Trump, right? Well, guess who's behind and working with Comcast? That's right. You're, right? you're anti-Trump. You're right? anti-Trump, but you're going to see Harriet, and Trump is tied in to Comcast, and Comcast distributes Harriet. Can we start getting a little smarter out here? A little, just a <laughs> little smarter. Can we just use a little bit of intellect? A little intellect. And stop being fooled. Just because they throw somebody in front of you that has black skin. That has black Let's skin. Let's stop being stupid. Let's stop being stupid. Now, for all the people, maybe you have not seen this meme, so we will put it up for you, right? Right here, this meme describes it perfectly of what's going on, right? And so many people are calling a boycott on Comcast, you know, because Comcast owns NBC. Which means they own MSNBC. So right. while they're talking about the big liberal agenda, they're trying to strip away right. what's going on. So we're gonna leave that up. There. You know what we can and just to, well before we wrap it up, it's just, I wouldn't be surprised if you know because you know Trump loves to tweet. So it would just be so hilarious and really a slap in the face that he tweets for all of you that say you don't love me. You sure did go out and support Harriet, <laughs> you know? So it's just like, you know, it's crazy. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> we, like we got to get on the same page <laughs> at some like, time. And then they like, oh, we're so against Trump. We're so against Trump. But yeah, you support it. You're supporting, you're supporting and, this. And, they, and, and the <laughs> Trump DOJ wrote an amicus brief. Right. They're going to get 10 minutes in front of the Supreme Court right. on November 19th. He's right? working no, with November Comcast. 13th, right? <laughs> They're going to have 
They're going to have 10 minutes. They're right. working with Comcast. Comcast going to have 20 minutes. Byron right. Allen's lawyers is only going to have 30 minutes. Right. He's already won his case in the right. appellate courts. They didn't want to hear about his business. They wanted, they wanted to take up the 1866 Civil Rights Act. Right. Number one reason why you shouldn't see this film, why you should stop supporting this film, right. why it should go down in flames. Right. It's because of that. And please, period. And for all freedom. Yeah. Your, your freedom. Right. Or, or are you so dumb? And let's not know, be it a, is freedom. Right. And let's not be a hypocrite and talk about Trump on one hand, but yet support this film because he's working with Comcast and Comcast distributes this film. So, so we're gonna leave this up for you to read. But you know, we <sighs> had a topic for tonight: the top five right. action films of all time. Right. My top five, starting at number five, is. Fast Five, that's where they introduced right. The Rock as Hobbs. It came out in 2011. Okay. Number four okay. is Mad Max, 1981, right? Okay. I was 11 or 12 years old when this came out. And the pace that the right. director, George Miller, did directing okay. in the edit, making the uh, velocity of the cars. Right. Seemed like it was fast and the destruction that was happening in the film. Great action. Number three, Blade. Wesley Snipes, 1998. He is a daywalker named Blade who is wiping out the vampire population. Beautifully done. It was shot low key. And the music of the time coming up there in 1998, they had that house soundtrack going that club music going damn 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 right yeah. it was just it was just a a a, a movie of its time it's yeah. a masterpiece number right. two spider-man into the spider-verse 2018 miles morales shamik moore yeah. right yeah. it is a cartoon right. but the action in it when he first meets Spider-Man, yeah. and he's trying to save him. I mean, right. that keeps you on the edge of your seat. Right. 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 And number one, okay. number one of my top all-time action films is right. Enter the Dragon by Bruce Lee. Right? right. John Saxon, and of course, our person who passed, Jim mm-hmm. Kelly. Yeah. Jim Kelly, that, that was just bad. See, that's another example of a film where the black man died. He punches him and he, he finds out he has a stick. But anyway, that's a, if you've never seen these films, let's go through them again. Enter the Dragon, number one. Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse. Number three, Blade. Number four, Mad Max, The Road Warrior, 1981. That's Mad Max 2 now. And Fast Five, where they introduce Hobbs, uh... The Rock, right. Dwayne Johnson as Hobbs character, and it turns from just a speed drifting speed yeah. film into more of a car high, a heist, yeah. car driven masterpiece. Yeah. You have to see these films. So that's my top five. Do you have your top five? Yes. What's your top five? Number one. Okay, so I have I Am Legend. I Am Legend. Yeah. Blade. Blade that number two. That's number two. Yeah. Okay. Um, Equalizer one. Equalizer one. That's yeah. Denzel Washington. He yes. was kicking butt. He was. Yeah. Um, Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad. Oh, Not only an action, but also DC Comics. Yes. And uh, Panther. 
Panther. Well, how yeah. could I miss out on Panther? Yeah. That was an action and also Marvel comic. Yeah. Greatly done. Next yeah. time we'll see Panther come back is 2022. Yes. Will it be the same? Will the Civil Rights Act of 1866 still be in existence after after they hear it in November uh, 13th and then rule on it and put out the ruling sometime? I don't know if they they take their hiatus and their recess. They may come back and rule on it in June of 2020, just before the election. Come on, people, wake up. Man, they playing chess, not checkers. They are playing chess, not checkers. Do not (laughs) go support the Harriet film because it's like we're supporting our own and our own um, disenfranchisement in America. It's ridiculous. Like, why would you go fund that? So people need to catch up. They need to know what's happening. They need to know all the time what's happening. They need to be somewhat on the same pages. Not a thousand or ten thousand pages away, but one or two pages either way, ahead or behind. But somewhere right there on that page, right? You have to be on that page to know what's going on, right? And no one would have NAACP mm-hmm. in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. They canceled their screening okay. because of the 1866 Civil Rights right. Act trying to scrape that. Right. Now everybody's coming out. I even saw some uh, Hebrew Israelites. I thought by Deuteronomy 28, this is what's supposed to be happening to us. Even they said, call your conscience. <laughs> I mean, like, what's going on? I thought right. that's what y'all preach. But right. when the rubber hits the road, Jack. When the rubber hits the road, all of a sudden all that fantasy fictitious goes out the window and the reality hits, people are like, hmm. In a way, I think it was just, I mean, it's like seriously like a slap in the face because they're trying to kill the very first Civil Rights Act bill, right? So not only... It's just the placing of everything. Not only are they trying to kill the bill, right? Then at the same time, see, this is the, the Chester plan. So at the same time, they're going to release, they release Harriet, right? Comcast, right? So then when you watch the film, they made the, the enemy in the film is it's a black, black man, right? So, the, you know, it's just... It's, and it's, it's some kind of sick love sick, interest right, between the slave master's and then son they choose, and they have Harriet. This, and they have this actress, right, who has uh, retweeted and made comments about black Americans, yeah. right? So, in, in very divisive comments and not, not just like one or two tweets, like these are like years of tweets, they, right? They have, they have, they have years of tweets where she has all of this like animosity towards African Americans. And these right? are the people who helped you. And, but, then, and so, they got a group and called like, Voltron. I mean, so, the Voltron. Yeah, you know. And then it's, so it's just like it's the way it's all laid out and happening at the same time. It's just ugh, it is a slap in the face. So, people, let's put it together real quick. Right. 1865, the the bill was passed in the Senate, but Andrew Jackson vetoed it. Who's Andrew Jackson? He's the Indian killer. But actually, the Indians he was killing in Florida was actually black, right? He kills it. 
they come back the following year and they, uh, by a two-thirds majority, override his veto. Whose bust, right. whose head bust is up in the White House right now? Who does Trump have in the White House right now on one of his back areas? You can see when he speaks from the Oval Office. Andrew Jackson. Right. Let's put this Let's put it together, people. And these people who, and, they, and you know, they say, ha ha ha, they say they hate Trump, but they're all rushing to go see the film. And we I got mean, to go, people, because we are out of time. You've been watching the film review movies, music, culture, politics, and society. We're the husband and wife team. I'm Crazy right. D. Tracy. And we'll see you next time on the film review. The film review movies, music, culture, politics, society, podcast, interviews, movie reviews, and more. Live Sundays at 5.30 p.m. on Facebook at Crazon Dion. Hey, everybody. This is Lunell, the original bad girl of comedy. I'm here at the Link Promenade in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, and you're watching the film review.